At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. How many are glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Um, Tonight, for me, is like Christmas Eve. I don't expect that you would be as enthusiastic as I am about annual celebration, but it is far more than a business meeting, my friends. The theme for tonight is all for one. And that's an appropriate theme because so often when we gather together, it's as individual campuses to be able to celebrate what Christ has done uh, to our ind- to and through our individual campuses, but occasionally it is appropriate that we would gather together as one family collectively to celebrate all that God has done and to be reminded that we are a part of something bigger. And how many know that when you have put your faith in Jesus, you are now a part of something much, much bigger that is happening throughout the generations, the ages, and around the world. Uh, Tonight, I get a chance to share an update of some of the things that God is doing and also to look forward to the future and their surprises. And for the kids, there's so much that is happening from laser tag to bounce houses. You may want to be a kid tonight uh, because it's going to be so much fun for them. But I do want to share just one stat. I'm going to share a lot of stats. And you know, the fact of the matter is the story of God's goodness can be told in so many ways. Numbers is just but one way. It's stories of transformation like we just saw as a daughter and a mother-in-law get baptized together. As young people say, I want to reach my generation for Jesus. But one statistic that I'm so grateful for is that on average, we get the privilege of ministering to over 1,700 kids and students every week through Woodside Bible Church. How many praise God for that? Thank you for your investment in the next generation. And I just want to give a big heartfelt thanks, and I want to invite you to do it with me to all of our kids directors, all of our kids volunteers, all of our student ministry leaders, and those who serve our students. Can we give them a big, big hand for all that they do to help us as we disciple our children and reach the next generation? For Jesus. So thank you for your generosity. And you know, around the world, we'll celebrate what God is doing through our 78 missionaries and seven global partners as well. So I can't wait. Please come back. Be my guest tonight at six. So this morning, I'm going to go a little bit easier on you because I want you to come back. So I'm going to go a little bit easier on you this morning. Today, I want to talk to you for just a couple moments about having a passion, living life with passion, but not just any passion, a passion for the gospel. How many know that when we live our lives with a passion, it makes a huge difference? Have you ever noticed that even the most mundane of tasks, no matter what the job is, if it is done with passion, it becomes memorable? As a matter of fact, I do believe this is true, that when we live life with a passion, we become memorable, but when we don't live life with a passion, or when things are not done with a passion, they become very much 
forgettable. One of my great examples for this is a college friend of mine. Her name is Sharice Miles. Now, Sharice went to Michigan State with me and uh, ended up becoming a flight attendant at Southwest Airlines. And among the many tasks that she has to do, she has a responsibility right before the flight takes off of sharing those uh, safety instructions. How many have flown before and heard those safety instructions? That's a forgettable moment, isn't it? I mean, after all, most of us are scrolling through our social media feeds or making final calls to loved ones before takeoff. Some have already kicked into their flight nap and others have just decided to tune the whole thing out. And very few of us actually take that diagram card in the front pocket in front of us that's conveniently placed there to give us a visual diagram of what to do in case of an emergency. How many are guilty like me of maybe not taking that moment as seriously as we should. Come on, tell the truth and shame the devil. We've all done it before. So Charisse noticed this. She noticed that here she is giving out this vitally important information to a group of people that seem to be overwhelmingly unenthused. So what did she do about it? Well, she decided to sing. You see, Charisse has an amazing voice. I would dare say she has a magnificent voice. And so one day she shows up to work, and you can imagine the surprise of her passengers as her voice, this magnificent voice, floated through the cabin. They hung on every word. They were enthralled. They were captivated. But most importantly, they were listening to the flight instructions. You see, when life is lived with a passion, it becomes memorable. All Sharice did was brought passion to her purpose. I love this quote by Pastor John Piper. He wrote the book, Don't Waste Your Life. I would commend it to you. He says this, that the wasted life is a life without passion. Now, there is more to that quote, but I want to just consider that statement for a moment. I agree with that, that the wasted life is a life without passion. And I'm amazed at how many people captivate us and uh, capture our attention just because they're enthusiastic about something that otherwise we would not care about at all. Listen, folks, I don't even like to cook, but I love watching the Food Network channel for people like Emeril Lagasse. How many have heard of him before? I just love seeing him say, bam, as he throws a new spice into a delicious dish. Or how many times have I been excited to to uh, buy and flip a house just because of the passion of Chip and Joanna Gaines. Anybody ever heard of them before? I can't even fix a garbage disposal, but when I see them, man, I want to fix up a house and renovate it. Or how many have ever heard of Bear Grylls before and wanted to take some adventure? He's an adventurous, and uh, I can't run a 5K, 3K, or 2K, but I do know this. When I see him, I want to climb a mountain and go on some uh, expedition because of the passion he lives with. You see, when people live with a passion, they captivate our attention. But when we don't live with a passion, we are forgettable. And so it is in the Christian life. The Bible compels us to live with passion. John Piper goes on to say this, Yet the wasted life is a life without passion. God created us to live with a single passion to joyfully display his supreme excellence 
in all spheres of life. Over and again, the Bible encourages you and I to live with a passion. Now, the word that the Bible uses for passion in the New Testament is zeal. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse number 11, never be lacking in in zeal, that we should be full of passion. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter 4, verse number 18, that it is good to live with passion, provided the purpose is good. So what is the good purpose that we should live with passion about? Out of all the things we're passionate about, what should be our supreme passion? Well, that's simple. It should be God, knowing him and making him known. Our passion for Christ is what we should be known for above all things. You know, I watch a lot of sports in my house. I go to sporting events and, you know, I get a lot of illustrations from it. So if ever my wife complains, I typically tell her, honey, I'm doing sermon research. Uh, And that goes over sometimes, sometimes it doesn't go over real well. But the one thing you learn about sports is you don't have to tell that group of people to be passionate. You don't have to tell them to paint their face or put on the jersey of their favorite player or to cheer when their team is putting points on the board. They already have that passion in their hearts. And friends, we should have that passion in our hearts as well. We should be excited anytime Team Jesus, our team, is putting points on the board. Anytime we see young men and women making professions of faith in front of their generation, we should get excited about that. Anytime we see mothers and daughters being baptized together, we should be excited about that. Anytime we hear testimony of the gospel spreading around the world and touching our community, how many know we should be over the moon, full of joy and excited about what God is doing to advance his kingdom? And this is what life is, that ultimately what God wants for us is that the gospel would not just captivate our hearts, but it would become the centerpiece of our lives. But we need examples of that. Every one of us needs a role model for that. And today I want to introduce you to a church, a group of early believers called the Thessalonian Christians that I believe become the model of the type of zeal and enthusiasm we should live with for the gospel. Now, a little bit about this church before we delve deep into what made them so special. This was a church that was born, according to Acts chapter 7, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, 17 rather, Acts chapter 17, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey. Turn to Acts chapter 17 with me. We're going to read a few verses there. The Apostle Paul, many may not realize, was so in love with Jesus, so captivated by the gospel that he became a missionary. It wasn't enough for him to say, I believe in these things, but he was compelled by love to share the truth of the gospel with people around the world so that they might know the hope of the salvation we have in Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul was on a missionary journey and he stopped at a city, an ancient Roman city named Thessalonica. Now he was only there for three weeks, but during that three weeks, God used him to help to birth a church. Let's look again at Acts chapter 17, verses one through uh, four. It says, 
Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. How many thank God we live in simple cities with simple names? (laughs) Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and was, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, that's three Saturdays or three weekends, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Uh, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Folks, this is amazing. I hope you see that this church, through an explosion of the grace of God, was born out of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit at work in and through him, as he reasoned with them from what we would call our Old Testament, the Torah, helping them to understand that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, not just the Messiah of the Jewish people, but the coming Messiah who would one day save the world. He was persuading them from the Torah. And what happened? Well, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, faith was born in the hearts of many. There were Jews who believed, but not just that. There were Greeks who believed, but not just that. There were leading women who believed. Now, why would Luke the historian record these three groups? Not superfluously. He didn't throw that in extra That's intentionally. He wants us to know that this early church, from its very inception, was breaking every cultural barrier through the power of the Spirit of God at work in them. There were Jews and Greeks. That didn't normally happen. Men and women, that didn't normally happen. But they were all worshiping together, not coming from the same background, not liking the same music, not all wearing the same clothes, but what united them was faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ and their passion for the gospel. But if you read a little bit further, what you would see is that after three weeks, Paul was ran out of town, literally run out of town, as was his custom. I would imagine that him and his friends often wore tennis shoes for how often they were run out of town. But let me ask you this question because it does beg the question. What would you think would happen to a church that was born over three weeks, a baby infant church that had its leader abruptly taken from them? What do you think would happen to a church that had all of the cultural tensions that are out there in the world among them within the fellowship if their leader after three weeks had been stripped away from them? Well, many of us would assume that that type of church would fail, that it would ultimately uh, flail out, that somehow that type of church would not survive. But the very opposite is true for the Thessalonian Christians. They not only survived, but here's the good news, they thrived. And God used them to touch the world and recorded their testimony for our admonishment and edification as well. What allowed them to survive, friends? What will allow us to survive in a culture that is hostile to our faith? It is simple. It was their passion for the gospel. 
Let's go, if we could, for just a moment to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to find out more about this church as we read just a few short verses here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, 1 Thessalonians comes in your New Testament after the book of Colossians. So if you find yourself near Exodus and Genesis, you went the wrong way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul starts with a typical Greco-Roman welcome. This is a typical welcome that you would find in an ancient letter. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Verse number two, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. You know, it's so easy to think that's a throwaway verse. Nothing really important to see here that we can rush past that and get to the meat. But friends, I encourage you not to do that. The fact of the matter is there is so much in just these two verses But I'm going to bring out just one point that I want you to uh, brand in your heart that I don't want you to forget. And I think it's the main point of these two verses, and that is Paul was thankful for this group of people. He was thankful for this church. Look at the powerful words he uses when describing them. We give thanks to God always. That's a powerful word. For all of you, that's powerful. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Do you see the overflowing gratitude that Paul had for this church? He loved this church. It was a pleasure and a privilege to him to pastor them. There's a little bit more about this. If you keep your finger here and just go over one chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, And let's look at verse number 20. And it reads as this, him describing the church a little bit more. For you are our glory and our joy. Not only was he thankful for this church, but this church brought him tremendous joy. He loved being a part of the leadership team that served this local church. And friends, I just want to say I can relate to the joy that Paul has for being a part of the leadership team that served his local church because I have that same joy serving this local church. I know I speak for all of our pastors and our leaders when I say, man, it's a joy to be a pastor at Woodside. It's a joy to serve here. And I think just like Paul saw that this group of people loved the word of God and they loved one another and that love compelled them to serve the, the, their neighbors and their community and to reach the world with the gospel. I gotta be honest with you, when me and my wife and my family came here four years ago, those are the things that stood out to us. What was very clear about this church, Woodside, is that you love the word of God. And that's not true everywhere. There's, not every church wants a pastor to preach to them the scriptures and not pop culture or social science. Not everybody just wants the word of God, but I praise God that that's true for this church. Another thing that's true about this church, and I know we're not perfect, but what is very evident is that there is a clear love that you all have, that we have one for another. It's expressed through life groups, it's expressed through meal trains and how we show up to one another's houses when we're in crises, how we help and rally around one another. 
And the other thing that is very evident and clear is the commitment to serve the world on behalf of the gospel, to serve those that are in need and and to spread the gospel locally and abroad. Like Paul, I thank God for this church. Not perfect, but such a pleasure and such a joy. And I wish I could say that about every pastor I knew. But the fact of the matter is there's so many pastors I know that lament the church that they lead. So many pastors that I know that regret the churches they lead, that wish that they were reassigned to another church. And I wish I could tell you that Paul found great joy in all the churches that he served and that he led. But scripture tells us another story. If you've ever read the uh, letters to the Corinthian church, you would know that they gave Paul a whole lot of heartburn. This was a group of Christians that were so immature, so carnal, that Paul had to write them again and again to just simply behave. Just behave. And then there's the Galatian Christians, and Paul had to address their self-righteousness. They kept on taking credit for their own salvation and thought their resumes were impressive to God. And Paul calls them foolish Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians, how have you begun in the spirit and now you're over in the flesh? You're not impressive to God. You are saved because of his grace and that alone. Stop being prideful. And then there's the Philippians, and there were these two prominent women in the Philippian church, and they had a a sharp dispute, and their disagreement was so severe that they threatened to rip the entire church apart as people formed factions and picked sides. No, every one of the churches that Paul serves didn't bring him joy like the Thessalonians, but they were his glory and his joy. And what was it about them? They had a passion for the gospel, my friends. How do you know if you have a passion for the gospel? Well, three ways, and then we'll be quickly done. The first way you know that you have a passion for the gospel is seen in verses three through five is because the gospel comes to us. Look at what Paul writes, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul says, we know God chose you by how the gospel came to you. This is Paul's way of saying, we know God has chosen you by your reception of the gospel, your receptivity to the gospel. This was a a group of people that were a hungry group of people. They were hungry for God, hungry for his word, hungry for the gospel. And Paul said that was the evidence we needed to know that God was at work among you. Friends, as a preacher, as a speaker, I will tell you there's a difference between preaching the word of God to a group that's not hungry for God's word and one that is hungry for God's word. You can be prayed up and studied up and fasted up, but when you're talking to a group of people that are hungry for God's word, every phrase is arduous. Every sermon, every message is difficult. There have been times when I have put all of my week into preparing a message for a group of people that had no hunger for the word of God, and it felt like every word fell on deaf ears. The fact of the matter is, Scripture even says concerning Jesus that he couldn't even do many mighty works in his own hometown because of their unbelief. Get that. 
Yeah, God does either honor or dishonor our hunger. And there have been other times, conversely, where I have been physically exhausted, mentally drained, emotionally empty, standing in front of a group of people with only a Bible open and the word of God in my mouth, and their hunger literally felt like it was pulling the word of God out of me. Those are marvelous moments. Those are moments where you as a pastor know that this is far more than my preparation. This is God honoring the hunger of the people. So next time you go to church and the the sermon is subpar, don't just blame the pastor. The fact of the matter is they were hungry, and how do we know they were hungry for the word of God? Look at what he says in verse number five, that the word of God came to them, not just in word, the gospel didn't just come to them in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. My friends, God was at work in them, forming and and empowering and shaping them and equipping them so that they could go out from that place and impact the world for Jesus. They were full of a hunger and a passion for the gospel. You know, I grew up in a home of educators. I've married into a family where my wife's parents were educators as well. And so I'm enthralled by teachers, and uh, I was recently on an online chat where a group of teachers were asked the question, name your favorite student in all of your years, and what made them your favorite or best student? And it was interesting. I marveled at the responses of the teachers, but two characteristics emerged. One was work ethic, that their favorite students uh, all were eager learners, and they were willing to work hard at the subject matter. And secondly was perseverance or endurance, that these were students that were not easily deterred just because life got hard or a season of difficulty came or subject matter got to the difficult part. And as I read that, I reflected on verse number three, and I said, this is exactly what describes these Thessalonian Christians. Look at what it says. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a group that worked from faith. They didn't work in order to be saved, but they worked because they were saved, because they had been redeemed. They wanted to serve one another and, and, and their community on Christ's behalf. They labored from love. This is a group where you didn't have to pound the table for volunteerism. They were ready to serve because they were so overwhelmed by the love of God that they had received. They held on to their hope in Jesus. Even in the culture that tried to strip that hope from them, they would not let their hope in Jesus go. Why am I bringing all of this up? It's because I want us to be this type of church. I want us to be a church that doesn't have diminishing passion for the gospel, but increasing passion for the gospel. How many in here, by the show of hands, have been serving Jesus for some time now, but you still are hungry for more? How many have been studying the word, but you still are hungry for more? How many love him, but you still want to serve him more? Praise God that he is at work in you and that the passion is still there. Never lose your passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But it wasn't just that the gospel had come to them, but it was that the gospel had changed them. 
Look at verses six and seven, and we'll see how the gospel had changed them. It says in verse number six, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Jump down to verse number nine with me, if you will. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, so much that's here. Praise God. First, he's saying that we know you've been changed because you're no longer worshiping idols, but you're worshiping the true God. That wasn't a figure of speech either. That was literal. You see, in Paul's day, there was a Greek pantheon, and many of the people that they were witnessing to were worshiping the gods of the Greek pantheon. But if you study Greek mythology, what you would find is that these are immoral gods, if you will. They uh, over-exemplify the uh, immorality that you see in humanity. They were ethically immoral, sexually immoral, financially immoral, and it became true that the morality of the gods you worship become your morality. Never forget that. And so when Paul says, we know you've been changed because you're no longer worshiping idols, what he's really saying is your morality has changed. You are no longer sexually promiscuous or immoral. You are no longer ethically immoral. You are no longer financially immoral. You are now reflecting the character of the God of Scripture, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Word. You've been changed. And how were they changed? Well, he tells us how they were changed. First, they were changed by being imitators of their leaders. There's a lot to be said there. I pray that we as your leaders will be examples that you would want to imitate. That we would live lives that you would admire, that the way that we would serve our families and, and uh, love you may not be perfect, but again, something that you would say, man, I would want to follow them. But I also would caution you to remember that every leader is human and that far too often we err and we stumble and we fall and the safeguard that Paul gave to all believers throughout all time is when he said to those he was leading, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, as long as I'm following Christ, then follow me. But the moment I deviate from following Christ and his teachings, then don't follow me. You see, what's profound here is that they weren't just following their local church leaders. They were following the teachings of the apostles, what we would call our New Testament. That, friends, becomes the litmus test. I pray that as you evaluate any of us and even your own lives, that the word of God becomes the standard. And I would say, I would caution to anyone in any church, if you have leaders that you can't admire in Christ, can't model or, or follow in Christ, then you should probably find a different church. But I would also pray that if your leader should stumble or fall, that your faith in Christ would not be wavering at all because it is rooted and grounded, not in personality or persuasion, but in the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of the living God. 
Paul says you've been changed, not just because of that, but in verse number 10, he says you've been changed because you're waiting for the sun from heaven, because you're looking forward to the return of Christ. Again, we just sang it. How many believe in a resurrection that he's coming back again? And he says, look, look at how your tomorrows shape your todays. As you look forward to Jesus, it gives you a hope for the future that is steadfast, unmovable, unshakable. Well, the third way you know you have a passion for the gospel, just one more verse, verse number eight, and then we're going to worship God together as we close. But in verse number eight, it says this, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but, you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is Paul's way of saying we know we've been changed, not just because the gospel comes to us or changes us, but because the gospel goes forth from us. Friends, notice throughout the New Testament, wherever the gospel is believed upon, it is proclaimed. If you really believe in Jesus, you won't keep silent about him. You will tell your kids and your grandkids, you'll tell your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, And yes, you will invest it all so that the world might know that hope has come because Christ has come. Today, I want to commend you for your passion for the gospel, but I also want to challenge you to let's be like these Christians. Let's live with a passion for the gospel. Let's be hungry. Let's be changed, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. And let's pray like them that the gospel would shine out from us, sound out from us. Notice that it didn't just reach their local region, Macedonia, but it went to Achaia and it went to everywhere, Paul says, the end of the earth. Yes, I pray that we would impact Southeast Michigan, but how many want to see the gospel spread all over the world? Again, until all have heard, until Christ returns. Stand with me all over this church. Today, I would encourage you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if you haven't done that today, I would encourage you to do so. And after we're done, I invite you to come to the front. There'll be leaders to pray with you, or if you're watching online, just type the word connect. But also know that there are some of you that are here today and maybe you've lost your passion. You know, that happens in life for a number of reasons. Maybe you got into an unhealthy relationship or went through a discouraging moment in life. Pray what the Psalmist David prayed with me today. Psalm 51, he says, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today we would not be lacking in zeal. I pray today that our passion for the gospel as a church would change the world, that we would all be committed to reaching individuals who are desperately in need of your grace, all for one. Let us live this way, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said a big amen and amen. I'll see you tonight. Give God praise. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.